1: Well, well hello everyone, I would like to call this Committee of the whole meeting to order for the Kalamazoo City Commission From Monday February 6th, and I just want to say uh, Hello and greetings Here we are in uh, Black history month our first meeting and it's nice to see everybody on the Commission and Court boiling somehow. I don't know if we had an extra week off It seems like it's been a long time since we've been together somehow I uh, and It's nice to have uh, our friends here with us uh, For this special meeting here for this work session in the chamber, so very pleased to see you all here I'll Try not to do that again All right uh, Somebody have their mics up Our first order of business is the calling of the roll clerk Borling
2: Commissioner Decker Commissioner Hess, here. Commissioner Hoffman, present. Commissioner Juarez, Commissioner Pradle. present. Vice Mayor Cooney,
3: present. Mayor Anderson,
1: here. Uh, Thank you, Commission. Can we have a motion to excuse Commissioners Decker and Juarez from this meeting? So moved. Motion made by Commissioner Pradle. Support. Supported by Commissioner Hoffman. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. Okay, motion passes. Next on our agenda is communications. Manager Ritzma.
3: Uh, nothing tonight, Your Honor.
1: All right, thank you. Uh, now is the time for public comment here at this committee, the whole meeting, for public comments here. They are limited to two minutes. Uh, you have an opportunity to come forward. There's uh, actually we've got a little table here closer. So anyone in the chambers who'd like to come up and make comments, please give us your name whether you live in the city and I'll wait first to see anybody wants to do that, but also people can call in and make comments, and Andy here from my IT department is capably handling that. I want to remind folks that uh, if you are watching and you want to call in, which you should do now, and I will give you that number, as a reminder, it is 888-382-9556. So, First, then anyone in the chambers who wants to take advantage of this public comment opportunity for our community of the whole meeting.
4: Hi, I'm Regina Nelson. I live at 2523 Ridgeview in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm also a professor and a researcher in early childhood education at Western Michigan University. I've also been a part of the Kalamazoo County Ready For's research team that evaluated the impact of attendance in high quality preschool on four year olds in Kalamazoo County. Our studies showed that students made noticeable academic and social emotional gains that help prepare them to be successful in kindergarten. We know that if children are successful in kindergarten they will be more likely to be successful in subsequent grades graduate from high school and have increased earnings. Being on this positive scholastic trajectory means they will also have lower rates of grade retention, incarceration, teen pregnancy and more. Investing in high quality early childhood education is one of the most effective social support programs to date. It is also much cheaper for a community to provide high quality early care that than it is to provide interventions later in life. As a community advocate and a board member for YWCA, Isaac, TRHT and KC Ready Forest, I want to thank you all for providing support to ensure all children in our community receive this benefit to reach their full potential. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
5: Can you hear me okay? Sherry Welsh, 1015 Cambridge. I'm a resident of the city. I'm the CEO of Welsh & Associates. We're an executive search and professional recruiting services firm, also located here in downtown Kalamazoo. So I'm here today to speak with you a little bit about high quality pre-K and how it affects our workforce. Um, We do know that it has a significant impact on our workforce in the short term and the long term, and here's why it matters. We're predicted to be in a talent crunch for at least the next decade. Why? Well, we don't have enough working age people. Simply put, too many boomers leaving the workforce, not enough Gen X and millennials to fill the gap. Also, many working mothers have left the workforce. Recent McKinsey research shows that 45% of women with children age zero to five cited lack of childcare or pre-K or the expense of the same as a reason for why they left the workforce. So the challenges that we face with labor shortages, quite frankly, are not going away anytime soon. However, universally accessible, high quality pre-K programs can help address those challenges both now and into our future, and here's how. The data clearly shows us that pre-K improves educational outcomes leading to increased rates of employment, and it helps us develop a highly skilled workforce for tomorrow, which we desperately need. Accessible high quality pre-K programs help working mothers return to the workforce. After surveying men and women with children ages zero to five, McKinsey research told us that 69% said help with childcare or pre-K would make them more likely to choose an employer and 83% said childcare benefits would be an important factor in deciding whether to stay at their current employer. Universally accessible pre-K is both a talent attraction and a talent retention tool, particularly for 30-somethings, a demographic all of our employers are clamoring to hire. Pre-K could help attract and retain families of younger workers to live and work in Kalamazoo, and. Thank
1: you, thank
6: you. Hello. I'm Dr. Charmaine Eccles, and I reside at 3518 Laurel Hill Kalamazoo Michigan. I am speaking to you today on behalf as a former KPS administrator coach and a former Northside preschool curriculum director. And I come today on behalf of Casey Ready Force as a leadership mentor who works closely with a lot of the directors here in our county. A job that is difficult as you may imagine but it is definitely necessary. One of the most common things I hear from most of the directors now as I go in the building to help and encourage them and mentor them is that how hard it is and what a great challenge it is to not be able to find highly qualified teachers and to retain the teachers in the classroom. Across Casey Ready 4s we have a partner program there are seven unopened classrooms due to no staff. Now just imagine how many children could be addressed if we would be able to retain and have those highly qualified teachers in this classroom. Well Casey ready Fours is frequently told about programs a lot having no shows for interviews having individuals and then they no show on the first day. Well that's quite a challenge. And so we're now working with directors to cultivate those experiences but we need to find those highly qualified people and also to secure pay for them. Suzanne Buford author of the most important year pre kindergarten and the future of our children identifies that the most important factor in classroom quality is showing positive adult child relationships that they can only happen when there is consistent high quality staffing. And we hope that we can determine that throughout our future.
1: Thank you very much.
7: Really quick. I need to, I've been informed that the comments coming through this mic are actually not on the live stream. Okay. Uh, So I want to pass this, use this
8: mic please. Use that, okay. I've already unmuted it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Andy, and I apologize for that.
8: Uh, good evening. My name is Namita Sharma, and I live in the city of Kalamazoo, uh, a city that has three institutions of higher education and is considered to be an education community. I'm also the proud chair of K.C. Ready For's our board, um, and I want everyone to know that this community, which has the Kalamazoo Promise. The career technical education millage is a a community that has so much to be proud of in the realm of education. But we can't forget one important aspect of that and that is the building blocks of success come for the little ones between the ages of zero and five years old. High quality pre-K in this community impacts the children and their families lifts up a community and particularly those that are under resourced. Sometimes in my court I'm a judge here in the county. I can tell you that child care and high quality child care could make a real difference to the youth that I see in the juvenile justice system had they had that opportunity. The first five years fund says that the brain is most flexible and adaptable to learning during the earliest years of life. Children who face greater adversity are at a far greater risk for delays in their cognitive language or emotional development. A supportive learning environment reduces the risk of children experiencing developmental delays. And the, the earlier we catch that, the earlier that we can identify those needs of those vulnerable children in particular, the earlier we can do interventions that can help them in their development and cognition. So I'm so proud to support this initiative.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else in the chambers who wants to provide a public comment? Thank you. And once again, I apologize for uh, the earlier comments not uh, being streamed. Seeing no one else in the chambers uh, Andy, is there anybody online who has called in and wants to make a comment? Let me check. Hold on.
7: I'm going to have to say no comments at this time.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Just as a reminder, Uh, I I want to let people know that our business meeting starts at 7 and there's an opportunity for public comments at our business meeting uh, another minute you get three minutes at our business meeting so uh, we also have an opportunity to make those comments in person and call in as well and I do want to thank everyone that uh, took the time thought about it in advance and made the effort to make some comments for our uh, edification here this evening on this important topic, so thank you. Uh, now we are down to our work uh, and our what are, we are specifically focused on here at the Committee of the Whole, and I will turn it over to Manager Ritzman.
3: Thank you, Mayor Anderson, and um, this has been a. Uh, A big topic lately of the city and city commission, uh, early childhood development. So we have an esteemed group of panelists here this evening. I'd like to thank everyone for their participation. Uh, Led by our very own Commissioner Pradle and Kevin Ford, our Shared Prosperity Kalamazoo coordinator and connection to Shared Prosperity Kalamazoo. Uh, Panelists, Grace Lubamba, of CEO of the YWCA, April Goodwin, Executive Director of Southwest Childcare Resource and Referral, Kristen Buell-Lapisto, Executive Director of KC Ready Fours, Rachel Roberts, Executive Director of the Preschool Programs for KRESA, and Tim Bardick, Senior Economist at the Upjohn Institute. So if you would like to come forward and take your seats, and I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Prado.
2: Give everybody a chance to, to get settled before we get started here. Wow.
9: That's so great to see these folks here.
2: Thank you everybody for being here tonight. It's so good to see everyone. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't take an opportunity to say that I feel incredibly blessed to serve with these individuals up here, Uh, Commissioner Hoffman, Vice Mayor Cooney, and uh, Commissioner Hess especially, this is an issue that they've really independently explored and are passionate about as well. And the next statement I'm about to make is on behalf of all of us, that the city commission is committed to our youth. Uh, It's evidenced in the $2.1 million, a historic amount that we devoted to our youth last year to serve um, an estimated 3,400 youth who were underserved and uh, supporting through Parks and Rec, programming with KDPS, and uh, 33 organizations that were funded through KidNet last year. But even going further, we have a desire to focus on early childhood. The conversation today here, Monday, February 6th, is just the beginning, and we envision this conversation continuing with additional partners. This is an all-hands-on-deck, Issue for our community we do not want anyone to feel excluded from the effort and want to assure people passionate about this topic that they can play a role if it's something they care deeply about but we got to start somewhere and we know that there's a group of people who are working tirelessly every single day including the wonderful people who are here today to talk um, on this issue and there is an opportunity a a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to kind of coalesce each other in a direction to tackle one of the most Challenging issues our community will continue to face in the next five to ten years. Today, we're hoping a few takeaways are sharing the state of early childhood education. Understanding what are the challenges people are facing trying to access it in our community. What are the current gaps? And what do we need to do as a community to get every child started on the right path? So it's an honor to pass it on to Kevin Ford, who is our shared prosperity coordinator, who is going to speak to the city's current efforts to support the whole family approach through shared prosperity. So, Kevin, thank you.
10: Hello? All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you all uh, for having me. I won't take a lot of time. I've been allotted 10 minutes. I will not take that entire 10 minutes uh, for two reasons. One, I want to give ample time to our guests to dive into this deep and salient issue um, and let their expertise shine. And second, what I'm about to say is not rocket science. So don't want to take too much time up on that. The last time I was in front of city commission was August of 2022. And how I ended that presentation is how I would like to begin this evening. Um, And it's with this quote, that children don't grow up in programs. They grow up in families and communities. And last time I was here and and said this quote, it was a challenge to our community on how we can better support families um, in order for adults and children to thrive together. And so, my time here, I was asked to to present to serve as a reminder um, and and ground our conversation in what we've already talked about. It's not something that's separate, early childhood and and children, and their development is not separate from um, what's happening with the adults in their lives. And this next slide, to touch on that, um, on, a, on a personal level, my oldest daughter recently had her second child. And with that, um, it, it comes a lot of uh, great new opportunities. Um, but that child is is connected to its parents, my oldest daughter, the father, and extended family like myself. And like me, some some folks in the family, may have multiple felonies, um, have had some contact with the criminal justice system, or may not even have obtained uh, a high school diploma. And yet, as a community, we are more likely to pour into this child and sometimes dismiss the adults in her life. And when we say it out loud, it's obvious that that's an error, but in practice, we, we tend to move in a in way as business as usual and I want to request humbly that as you listen to these esteemed folks doing this work that we keep that in mind and, and listen through the lens of how can we support families uh, to thrive in our community right as a whole and so That's all that I have to say. Again, thank you. Um, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Um, And I hope it leads to some some good action. Thank you.
11: Do I have to go over there or stay here? Because I need my slides. Okay. Thank you so much, commissioners, for having me here today and joining all the wonderful people that are really the warriors of what we are talking about. And I remember, my name is Dr. Grace Lubwama. nine years ago when I moved to Kalamazoo as a single mother, my children were not even ready for kindergarten yet. I could not find child care. Educated, I had a job, and I could not find a child care place for my children. Even when I ran a child care at the YWCA, we did not have space. So I wanna start from here saying, Kevin has said, the work is not complicated. We make it complicated. It is not. When we talk about equitable access and how to reach the most vulnerable in Kalamazoo City, we know where they are. And we spend a lot of time meeting and talking about these things. I wanna talk about elevating to universal childcare. As we are talking about early childhood, and I'm gonna go through my slides quickly. I have 10 minutes, right? I, I kind of, te- as we talk about um, really increasing access in Kalamazoo to talk about universal child care. That's a new language, that's an innovative way that within the early childhood language that we are speaking about it. Really speaking from how are we supporting families from the time of conception to the time that they are ready for kindergarten. That means we have to go way back where families are struggling to find a place of work, get employment, and make sure that we are supporting them. We have a great opportunity right now in Kalamazoo when around the nation they are talking about childcare, around the state that they are talking about childcare. Though we have an opportunity to be innovative and introduce universal childcare in our community. That means it will include pre-care as well. So as we talk about that, you cannot separate the desire for supporting health of mothers, for supporting the health of the community, for supporting the health of parenting parents if on their babies, if we are not talking about equitable access to child care, We know our data in Kalamazoo is very clear. Black babies in our com- even celebrating their first birthday so they will not be ready for kindergarten unless we go back from the beginning and make sure that we are intentional about closing the racial disparities that exist in this in this community we can keep talking about these things we can keep funding more programs the disparities will not change until we start to do some innovative work the research is very clear about how do you close disparities and where's your highest investment from an economic perspective when you start at pregnancy. As you move forward, early childhood is key to how we are going to change and shift the paradigm in this community. So making sure that we are really having a conversation of universal child care in Kalamazoo. We are probably going to be the pioneers in that space. Nobody else in the country is doing that. We have an opportunity to be specific of how that looks like. I'm going to run through my slides so quickly. So, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) One, it's reinventing itself. You know, it's dismantling the status quo. We can't keep doing the same things after and after and funding the same programs and getting the same results. The city has an opportunity to do something different. The city has an opportunity to have impact, especially on the most vulnerable. And we speak about the SK communities, the SPK neighborhoods in Kalamazoo. It is not complicated. We know where those neighborhoods are. The data speaks in terms of poverty. The data speaks in terms of economic status in those communities, and that's part of the city. We have an opportunity to really dismantle the status quo and be ready to do things differently. Move to the next slide. I'm jumping through. What are the challenges mothers and parents are facing trying to access quality child care? And these numbers are both nationally, uh, statewide, and regional. So we are bringing it down to Kalamazoo. But the challenges are the same because we are not really looking at the equitable access of child care. So not enough child care in the SPK neighborhoods. That is real. It is real. It is not new to this community. When you look at the north side, the Edison neighborhood... We do not have enough childcare and we have an opportunity to increase those opportunities. Lack of system support. How do we support the most vulnerable families in Kalamazoo, especially the families of color? Knowing that systematic racism is embedded in everything that we do, how do we lift up those families in a way that is intentional? We've talked about affordability. Childcare is expensive. It's expensive for people who have good jobs. For people who are working minimal jobs in the city, how are they able to afford child care? And we know running a child care center for the YWCA for over 50 years, early childhood is not the best sustainable business model. Unless we get funding from uh, state and federal to support it, you will not force a parent to pay when they can. not you won't send a child home because their parents cannot pay. So from a business perspective, it was designed not as a sustainable way, and that means the most vulnerable families are struggling to do that. And then disempowering the workforce. We want to make sure that we elevate the workforce in the our childhood industry. We just launched a workforce development that we are all partners of this work, making sure we have the right talent that is going to support in that space. Next slide. What are the current gaps? Again, I've talked about those things, I'm not going to repeat. Affordability, second and third shift. The majority of our vulnerable families are working second and third shift. COVID showed that to us. Our most vulnerable working families in Kalamazoo are working those shifts. We have to make sure there is access. I'm here meeting with you five o'clock and my children are left home by themselves. So we have to make sure that we have those opportunities. Emergency care, when something happens within your family, we have to make sure there are places that families can take care of their children. Drop off as needed, you know, access to transportation, tuition assistance. I'm repeating a lot of the work that we've done in collaborative with all the partners that are here. Knowing that supporting families is important and then culturally relevant especially as we touch the most vulnerable in our community, and especially as we touch families of color and what systematic racism has done to those communities. Next slide. What does Kalamazoo need to do? I think I've said a lot of those things. We have an opportunity. The city has an opportunity. You have it in your hands to be innovative in this space. You have a very small geographic area that can be intentional and targeted to fund universal child care in the SPK regions of Kalamazoo, and that means full access to all SPK neighborhoods for prenado, uh, for a child care from prenado to 48 months, and then pre K. We have an opportunity to do that work. Next slide. Focus on equity. I think I've said a lot of those. You know, equity means like let. us put our resources to the most vulnerable in this community. We will not dismantle anything. We will not shift the perspective of Kalamazoo unless we are intentional about equitable access. That means looking at the neighborhoods that are struggling, neighborhoods that do not have all the resources that they need. That's where our investments need to be. That's how we are going to change the numbers that you're worried about. That's how we're going to have economic impact in this community when we are really focused on equitable access, especially in the SPK neighborhoods. Is that the last slide? <laughs> how many more minutes do I have? <laughs> I, I'm probably repeating this and I'm gonna share these slides with the city commissioners, but I really wanna emphasize we have an opportunity to focus on universal child care in those neighborhoods with the resources that we receive. And what that means is funding available to offset the cost of childcare, funding transportation services, funding in-home childcare. We know, especially in communities of color, we have a lot of in-home who are doing this work that are not recognized for the work that they do, but they're stabilizing those communities and making sure that those families have childcare. You know, funding to improve work conditions for early learning professions, making sure that they are meeting the wages, that we are providing the wages and benefits for our child care providers and, and staff, supporting collaboration to develop SPK universal care systems, and funding to support families with basic needs. No family will send their child to pre k if they can't even meet their basic needs. I think I'm going to end there. Thank you so much. Thank
8: you.
12: Good evening. Um, First we just want to take a minute to thank the city for bringing this important topic to the forefront. My name is Kristen buell LePisto, and I'm the executive director for Kalamazoo County Ready Fours. Um, We partner with Grace and the YW and 57 other programs throughout the county. Um, And April Goodwin is the executive director of Southwest Childcare Resource and Referral. and they're a statewide program that supports child care providers in achieving quality. And then to my right is Rachel Roberts, the executive director for preschool programs at KRESA. Um, she's my biggest and best partner with Kalamazoo County Ready For us, And together, the two of us lead Kalamazoo County Pre-K. Um, and that's a collaborative and inclusive partnership between Head Start the Great Start Readiness Program, or GSRP, and Casey Ready 4s to provide high quality pre-K experiences that prepare children and families for lifelong success. Our partnership is unique in the state of Michigan um, and is one that distinguishes our community. Uh, We maximize public and private funding, which together uh, allows us to impact more children and and classrooms than we could alone. As a collaborative force, we avoid duplication of services. We ensure that all families receive the support they're eligible for and partner with teachers and directors throughout the county to bring additional supports and resources directly into the pre-K classrooms. And in a state that aspires to have universally accessible pre-K, the partnership that our organizations have is one of the reasons that Kalamazoo could and should be the leader in this important initiative. So tonight, our goal is to start the conversation of what investing in quality, universally accessible pre-K could mean for our community. As you watch the presentation, I wanna point out that these are not stock images. These are children from Kalamazoo. They're our future doctors and nurses, our future contractors and accountants, and our future mayor are our next leaders in our community and we hope to highlight the need to showcase the opportunity for kalamazoo and to inspire action to invest in our future
13: rachel thank you thank you again for having us this evening so i wanted to start off with the state of early childhood um, here in kalamazoo so the pandemic as you know it definitely had a devastation to many industries. And unfortunately, early childhood education was not immune. Uh, We were severely impacted, uh, such as with enrollment, with staffing, um, and the hardest, student outcomes. And we're seeing that play out as these students are moving into kindergarten. So I want to show you some um, graphs here So this is um, historical data for Head Start and GSRP. What this graph here is showing you is our actual over our funded enrollment. You're going to see that in 2019 or AKA pre-pandemic, right? Both Head Start and GSRP were over-enrolled, meaning that Uh, we service more students than we had funded slots for that happens when we have families that move into our community and families that move out of our community that has been the historical framework for so many years until 2020 there you see a huge dip that is when we had lots of virtual Um, learning going on or hybrid, and very few in-person preschool. And then last year, we do see a bump. Things are moving upward, but we're still not back to where we were prior to 2019. In this next graph, you're seeing our actual funded enrollment for 3- and 4-year-olds for Head Start, GSRP, and Casey Ready 4s you're seeing the same, the same data of fluctuation. Next, this graph shows a change in the number of classrooms from year to year. The first set is with our Head Start three-year-olds, the middle set is Head Start blends, our four-year-olds, and then the last set is our countywide GSRP. All of these, you see, there has been a decrease of classrooms over the years. Uh, in total, with Head Start and GSRP, as of today, there are 21 less operating classrooms. You might ask why. Well, there are a few child care providers, preschools, that had to close. They were unable to sustain the epidemic. And then what we are facing today, and that is staffing shortages. There is a staffing crisis. And so classrooms, just as uh, it was stated um, earlier, if we don't have staff for the classrooms, then students can't get enrolled. Then we're not getting students school ready. Uh, This is also able to see in our wait list. In 2019, between Head Start and GSRP, there was a total of 131 students on the wait list. Today, there are 292 children sitting on the wait list because we don't have classrooms that are operating or enough classrooms in the areas where it is needed. Um, so, one of, So basically, when we continue to think about the impacts that COVID and impacts that were already there prior to the pandemic, we're looking at the inability, the challenge that we have to retain, to recruit well-trained staff. One huge reason why is because we are unable to uh, provide competitive wages. We are facing uh, so many other industries even competing with k-12 what k-12 teachers and staff are getting paid it is substantially higher than our preschool teachers where most of them have the exact same credentials so those are things that we want to address and that we need to address so that we can continue to provide high quality preschool experiences one more slide so uh, challenges in accessing quality care I'm just going to be really repeating what uh, grace just said what we've all been saying is the staffing crisis um, limited availability due to um, you know the decrease in the classrooms that we've been seeing over time Um, we're also looking at that high number of students that are on the wait list um, competitive wages And then same thing, a high cost for families, those that do not, that are not Head Start or GSRP eligible, that are still working and living paycheck to paycheck, preschool, child care, it is expensive. There are so many families that have um, put things on hold, such as going back to school, going back to get vocational training, or even going back to work. We need to change things so that they can return to the workforce, return going back to school and be able to be there and provide for their families.
12: So what do we as a community need to do to get every child started on the right path? Which is the million dollar question. There's a few things that come to mind. First of all, we need to build a teacher pipeline Without qualified and caring staff in classrooms, nothing works. We need a pipeline of educators, and there are some initiatives out of uh, WMU, um, and another that April's team at Child Care Resources leads um, an apprenticeship program that allows for teachers to get experience in the classroom while they're earning their credentials at the same time. Um, And they provide support for those staff as they work through acquiring the credentials But until we have benefits and salaries that are above poverty level wages, attracting and retaining staff will continue to be a challenge. Pre-pandemic, we saw rates of around 30 to 40% of teacher turnover. I actually had a newsletter in my inbox on Friday from an industry consultant that said in childcare, the teacher turnover rate is 69%, which is an unfathomable number. We also need coordination to build awareness about the opportunities and benefits of preschool so that all parents know that 90% of brain growth happens by the age of five. And so that everyone understands that children who start kindergarten behind their peers are statistically more likely to stay behind their peers than they are to catch up. And this understanding of the power of preschool needs to be so normalized that everyone is asking, where is your three or four-year-old attending preschool next year, like they do to a kindergartner? And lastly, the most impactful thing we can do for our community is to set our children on a path towards greater success and better health, life, and school outcomes by providing all of our three and four-year-old children access to high-quality preschool. In turn, it allows parents to enter or stay in the workforce and ensures greater success for our future workforce. Kalamazoo likes to call themselves the education city, while education does not start at kindergarten. And I'm gonna turn it over to our own local expert, senior economist Tim Bardick from the Upjohn Institute to share more about the community impact of universally accessible pre-K.
7: Uh, Thank you. Uh, So you've heard about gaps in our current early education system. And we have developed a proposal, by we I mean KCR 84s and the various partners to help address some of those gaps. Uh, And to build on what the county community is already doing in education, we call this the pre-promise because I think it complements what the promise does. The promise is great, for kids who can graduate from high school and have the skills and and support to go to college. But as was already mentioned, we need to start earlier. So the proposal we have is to fund in the city of Kalamazoo, high quality, universally accessible. It's not required, but it is universally accessible because it would be free. It would be for all three and four-year-olds in the city. And what we're trying to do here is address two gaps that have already been mentioned. One is the lack of sufficient pre-K slots for everyone. That's especially true at age three, but to some extent it's also true at age four. The second is the gap that's been mentioned. We do not have the ability right now to attract at current funding levels per child quality teachers and retain them. So even if you you create slots and you don't fund them high enough, You can't attract the teachers, you cannot expand the pre-K sector if you don't fund it adequately per child. What does this cost? The cost for the city of Kalamazoo would be about $10 million annually. Why does it cost so much? One, you have to add hundreds of slots. That costs money, you need to find buildings, you need to get the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you also need to fund it at a level where you can pay adequate salaries. That's a funding level of close to $14,000 per child per year. It's not cheap because you're trying to get good teachers and have low class sizes and high ratios of teachers to um, uh, teachers to uh, kids. So, but there are great economic impacts of this. Um, and the most important one is impacts on the kids. You've already heard mention of the cumulative effects of pre-K, I mean, it's, it's not a magical thing. Here, here's what's going on, it's not some magical thing. How on earth does pre-K have such large, long-run effects on kids? It's because skills begets skills, learning begets learning. Kid goes into pre-K, as a result of that, not, it's not just academic skills, it's not like we're doing flashcards or whatever, that's not the point. The point is developing better social skills, better so-called soft skills, better social-emotional skills, better ability to get along with their peers, better ability to get along with their teacher, more self-confidence. They end up starting kindergarten with those skills. They do better in kindergarten. As a result of that, they do better in first grade. You go on and on and on. And any employer will tell you that, yes, academic skills are part of the skills problem in this country. But a lot of it has to do with, Can you find a worker who can get along with their coworkers, get along with customers, get along with their supervisor, can be a leader, is self-confident, can plan? And so those are some of the skills we need to develop in our children. Um, We estimate that this proposal would increase the percentage of children in the city of Kalamazoo who have access to a subsidized preschool opportunity from 38% to 68% close to double and the effect on that on long-run earnings of each cohort of kids this is one year's cohort of kids going through that at age 3 and age 4 over their career their earnings will go up by over 37 million dollars so that's for a 10 million dollar investment we get 37 million over a career that's pretty good that's a good investment the second impact which is also important is on parents and family members. Now, I want to emphasize that the primary purpose of pre K is not child care, just as the primary purpose of K 12 is not child care. But, you know, it would be foolish to deny the fact that, in, that our society does rely on K 12, for example, to provide a lot of very valuable child care to parents. It's a, it's a part of what it does. And the same is true for pre-K. And the estimates we have from a variety of studies have looked at the impact of pre-K on whether parents can enter the workforce is this would increase the the number of women entering the workforce of young women with young children under age five by 11 percentage points, 11 percentage points. And that's just in the short run. This actually has effect in the long run. So people have studied the effects of pre-K You actually find effects on people, whether they're working 10 years later or 15 years later. Your kid goes into pre-K. As a result, you can go into the workforce, go back to school, and you go back to school, and then you have better long-run earnings, and you're more likely to be working long-run. The annual increase in earnings in the short run is $10 million a year and you know from a business standpoint that is money going into the kalamazoo economy being spent on kalamazoo businesses that then can hire more people so there's a virtuous cycle here in addition to that simply providing subsidized pre-k is of enormous benefit to parents say who currently are spending an arm and a leg on pre-k right and that also pumps money into the kalamazoo economy it, it puts money into families. Uh, Kevin talked about supporting families. One way of supporting families is relieving them of some of the financial burdens they currently face. Finally, I want to mention some impacts that affect the city and its budget. So, as you may know, when we've looked at the Kalamazoo Promise and other similar scholarship programs, we found they do affect migration, and particularly they affect out migration. Uh, Acunities with Promise programs, families with kids are more reluctant to leave them. That makes sense. This program in financial benefits is roughly similar in magnitude to the average family with, with young kids to the financial benefits of the Kalamazoo Promise. It's actually of the same order of magnitude. It's about the same. Based on what we know about how Promise programs affect migration, We would expect this to increase the population of the city by about 1%. That would have some favorable effects on the business community. And the overall increase in property values of both residential and business property values will be about $59 million. And that, of course, has impacts for the city's budget. Um, So to summarize, overall, we estimate that although this costs $10 million, the benefits are either easily four to one or more. Now, uh, we can get into questions more. You know, there are a lot of details. The devil's always in the details. There are a lot of details here. Uh, One of the things we should just at least mention at the outset, though, is how is this going to be paid for? What are we thinking here? Well, first of all, there's the possibility that the state may pick up some of this. As I think people are aware, Governor Whitmer recently announced that the state intends to move ahead with some type of universal pre-K at age four. The details of that have not been released. A lot depends on what's the funding level per kid in that. Okay, very important detail, we don't know that yet. But that could easily pay for a significant portion of these costs, not all of it, but a portion. Second, this community, as we all know, has a lot of private individuals who are very supportive of a variety of educational and social uh, uh, investments in this community. We think this proposal can attract significant private support. Third, I do think this is something the city should consider investing in. I'm not saying the city should. Write a check for 10 million to cover all of this. I'm suggesting the city might be willing to partner with other investors and paying for a portion of this, either from the general budget or from the Foundation for Excellence, a variety of options, um, and consider that as an investment. Because there would be a return to the city budget over the next several years from this. Um, And we can get into this more in questions, but there are, uh, you know, this can be implemented over time. No one's saying that even if magically someone appeared and said, here's $10 million, you could not implement this fully by the fall of 2023. Why? You can't find all the buildings you need, all the classrooms you need. You can't find all the teachers you need. You need, it will take some time to gear this up. And so that means that, you know, part of what you, we can do in the interim is there's some short-term investments in helping getting buildings, getting curriculum materials, training teachers, et cetera, that we can ramp up over the next three or four years. I think this is something that is feasible to do. I think if we piece together the investments from the state, from private sources, and from the city, we can get this done. Um, it won't be easy, but I think it can be done, and I think the benefits to the city government, uh, to parents, and then finally, most of all, the benefits to kids. Really, ultimately, this is about the future of our children in this community. And if we invest in our children, I uh, I think we will not regret it in the long run. Thank you.
1: all right thank you very much so I appreciate everyone's really really thoughtful comments here Chris did you uh, intend to to summarize this at all from your perspective
2: or? I think we were gonna <clears throat> open it up to some questions uh, okay if, if commissioners had any questions and um, but definitely wanted to take a, an opportunity to thank everyone for all the time and preparation and, and thought that has gone into this tonight uh, you know I think it's uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that this is not something that just one individual can solve alone <clears throat> it's far greater than that uh, for many reasons as you outline <clears throat> and it's going to take uh, you know us as a, a, a community uh, to you know pick up each piece of the puzzle uh, to carry things forward uh, and I thank you all for uh, for your involvement and, and support and being warriors in this work as he said grace so thank you so much um, I think we just uh, have questions then for.
10: Great.
1: Thoughts or questions? Sure. Vice Mayor? Question? Yeah, Vice sure. Mayor Cooney.
9: Well, first of all, it's humbling <laughs> to sit here and listen to you folks with all the wonderful work that you're doing. So, thank you so much for all the great work you're doing for the people in our community. It's just amazing to me. Um, I guess um, one of the things that strikes me is the unique the uniqueness of this community that you have mentioned. Um, we already have so much great work going on. We already have the infrastructure in in the the collaborations that you have all developed, and the great work that Tim has done in in the research and um, not to mention the resources that we have in terms of the philanthropists that have stepped forward in this community already. So it seems like we, we have some kind of path here. And it seems like there's two different things. There's the early childhood thing that, that Grace is talking about. And then we have the pre-K thing, both of which are tremendously important. Um, And and I guess one of the things that strikes me is um, we don't want this to be a one-off thing where you come in here and talk to us and then we say, this is wonderful, thanks a lot. Now we got a whole bunch of other stuff to look at. No, we want this to be the beginning of a movement for universal childhood care in Kalamazoo. And, And Grace keeps saying, we can do this, we can do this, I believe we can do this and I believe that we could be a national model. So, one of my questions is, what do you see as next steps? What would you see as next steps here?
7: Well, one thing we're doing is being pretty open about it. We're having a lot of conversations. We're having conversations at the state level with people in uh, the Whitmer administration, with people uh, in the legislature to say, it makes a big difference what the state chooses to do with this universal pre-K proposal, for example. It would also make a difference if the state would go beyond the universal pre-K just at age four and say, we want to make some other funds available, say, for communities that are doing very innovative things in pre-k and child care. I think Kalamazoo is well-positioned if there was a discretionary state program that supported innovation in early childhood that would make a difference. So one thing to keep in mind, you folks are all involved in the political arena, is talking to our state legislators and the governor's office and other people in power in Lansing about what they're doing. There's going to be a lot of decisions made over the next few months over the state budget That affects how much on net this proposal costs. Uh, The other things we're doing is we are talking to people in the private sector. I mean, I'm not, you know, without, I don't want to get into who, you know, but we're trying to see if we can start getting some interest in this from different private donors. We're having some conversations about that. And of course, we're talking to you. So uh, you have decisions to make. You have budgets to allocate. You have uh, th- you know discussions. There's the Foundation for Excellence. There are various other things. We need to t- start talking and make sure that everyone's aware what all these conversations going on, and see if at some point we need to bring this together. I mean, I you know, and see how we bring it together. So that, that's some of what's going on, and you know. And then at some stage, when we can talk about how much money we raise, we have to talk about the implementation strategy over what you know. How do you implement this over three or four years? I don't know. Is there anything we should add to that?
11: Thank you. What I want to do on education. When we talk about universal child care and universal preschool, so we've learned in this community with the Kalamazoo Promise an investment that was made in, the, in this community. We can't start high. We have to go back to the beginning. When we talk about child care, we are talking about from the time of conception that before you even think of going to preschool, the data is very clear. They won't be ready for kindergarten if they're not even celebrating their first birthday. They won't be reading a third grade. They're not going to graduate high school. They won't even benefit the promise. It is not that complicated. We have to be ready right now, and we don't need to wait for the city for some of these things. Some of us who are advocates for this work are already moving. We are moving with the leader that we have to make sure that every child in this community is ready for pre-K to make sure that every parenting in this community knows that their child has a safe place to go, to go find a job with the city. I think we are now going to wait for you to do this work. Our passion is for the working families and the most vulnerable families in this community. And if they need to take care of their families, they won't wait for no city commissioner to make that decision. They'll find pioneers and champions in this community that believe in them and will do whatever it takes to make sure they can go find jobs and make sure that their children are safe and ready for kindergarten and ready for preschool and ready for graduating and benefiting the promise. The data is out there. After 10 years of investing in the promise, we still haven't gotten it right. That means we got to go back to the foundation. You can be part of this work or you can choose not to be part of this work. The reality is there is a population in the city that cannot show up at these meetings, but know what their needs are every day. We have narratives that think that these parents don't care about their children. They do. They just don't have the opportunity and the access to do this work. So as you're asking We won't wait for you. I bet those mothers won't wait. They are going to do whatever it takes. If it means having two jobs and leaving your child with your neighbor, they will do that to make sure that their families survive. So I know there is a national conversation. The governor is pushing universal child care as well. There is a lot of conversation. They just allocated grants to in-home child care support. There is a lot of conversation going on nationally. We have an opportunity, Kalamazoo, because of our size, to be the pioneers of this work, to move ahead and be intentional. We, it's a, such a small community. Your SPK neighborhoods are not complicated. So you can be part of this movement or choose not to be. I don't know if I answered that well, I'm sorry.
14: Great. I just want to uh, mention that when you're talking about moving, moving the needle and going back to zero, we have to go back to the beginning and as a um, resource center here in Kalamazoo County. We are also working with the uh, Caring for Michigan Future, which is the $100 million investment that the governor has made to open up 1,000 child care programs in the state of Michigan. This started February, it just, you know, it started, and we already have 77 here in Kalamazoo County people who have looked into wanting to start their own childcare so that they can have something for their children or for so we're working with building some entrepreneurs right here into the childcare so I just want to say that we are continuing and as you were saying we will meet that goal because our parents and our families want it already so we have that going here right here in Kalamazoo County we have um, Michigan we have TriShare where we've got employers that are already paying a third of their, their um, employees' child care. That's, that's big. Bronson Hat is, is one of our employers. They, are, they have over 60 employees who are getting a third of their child care paid. We have one mother who is, was out paying $300 a week for one child. Because of the tri-share, she only has to pay $100 a week. So we're out here still beating these bushes, and we're, we're going to win this game. So I mean, there's. I just want to make sure that we, you understand that it's a team effort, and we're all out here um, going to um, win this game.
13: I just wanted to add that. Also, next steps would be looking at the systems that we already have in place, and looking at where are the gaps, and how we can continue uh, and strengthen our coordinated services. Um, the, the families that are just having babies and have infants, they most likely have preschoolers too, and they have children in K-12. So how, how are we working together and coordinating? We already do a really great job of that already, but it can increase. So I think that just going back and looking at what are our current systems um, and and having to redefine and making those stronger.
9: So can I just finish that one thing? So the real question is, how can we join you in continuing this great work that you're already doing? And I think that's a question we got to ask ourselves. But we need your help in defining for us the ways in which we could join you.
7: Well, as I said, in the, at some point, there needs to be a discussion of a financial investment, and beyond that, there would have to be a discussion of how the city could help implement this, which obviously, we, you know, there are a variety of folks in Kalamazoo County pre-K, who, for example, and also in the childcare sector, who know how to coordinate childcare and pre-K dollars and the monitor for quality and to help ensure quality through training and support. I mean, that's what that's what KC Ready Forest does, that's what GSRP does, that's what child care resource referral does, that's what you know, all these groups are doing that. But the city does have a role to play, for example. I mean, if we're gonna have additional pre-K centers and child care centers, right? They need to go through a building approval process, right? They need to get the permits. Uh, You need to think about how do we make that as quick and as efficient as possible. You want to make sure that they're safe, but you don't want to have endless delays, which drives up costs, which makes it impossible to implement. So I think the city could be a partner in many of the things the city specializes in, like controlling, zoning, and building, and making sure these sites can be set up. And of course, that's one possible use of capital funds, because there are going to be, you know, I I do realize there's some Okay, there are more funds available right now than there might be five years from now because of the way in which funding has come from the federal government through all these stimulus bills. And so one issue is how can we invest short-term? Well, there are short-term investments the city could consider if we need sustainable money too, but we also need short-term investments. Some of those could involve buildings, some could involve curriculum materials, and some could involve training. So I think as a discussion, we need to talk about both what capital items are needed, it might be a little bit easier financially to deal with. And then also talk about, is there a way to, for the city to make a long-term operating uh, commitment to some of this? I think the operating commitment is also needed, because obviously you don't need the capital investments unless you can support the operating program long-term.
15: Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And Grace, I hear you. I see you I feel you like we don't need another meeting we know this is important and when we when will we as a community put people first again so I see this being a part of this a larger a larger system right so we know we have an issue with gun violence we know we have a, an issue with food insecurity we know we have issues with our education We we have all these things and they're all interconnected so once we make one one strong decision to say yes to something, it will be a ripple effect. So I just wanted to put that out there. We feel you, we see you. That's why you here. here, because it's time to move. Um, you, Tim, you, you kind of answered this already, um, but I want to put it out there again. Um, are we prepared, are you prepared to scale? it? And what is the city's role? Like, if we did have $10 million, are you all in the sector prepared to scale the work?
7: Like I, you should ask people who actually run these programs more than me. I'm, I'm a great pundit, great researcher, but, uh, but I don't run preschool. You wouldn't want Tim Barney running a preschool program. Uh, uh, I do a lot of research on them. Uh, I think realistically, the way I think we're ideally to do this would be a three-year process, that you would move to implement this over a three-year period, And the reason I say that is I think it takes time to get the additional buildings, to get the additional staff, make sure that they're trained, make sure you have the right curriculum materials, make sure we continue. We we have a pretty well-coordinated system at the scale we're at now. You need to keep the coordination as you expand the scale, and expanding scale creates some additional coordination problems. You have additional... You need to monitor quality. You need to figure out how you're going to do that. That takes you know, some thinking. How are we going to do that effectively? Um, so I would view this as we start moving ahead, do some things, add some additional slots and funding for the fall of 2023, ideally, and then we move at a much larger scale in the fall of 2024, and then hopefully fully implement by the fall of 2025. Uh, but really, you should ask uh, these folks how, how would you? What, what, do you, what, what do
11: you want to say? Okay. Yes, Tim is the researcher. We are the implementers. <laughs> you know, we just opened um, the 24-hour child care center, and all these are partners. You know, Careforce already comes and does the quality approach, uh, part of training, and, and we opened it in the midst of COVID, and I can tell you we still have a waiting list and you talked about the different social determinants of health uh, you know judge namida can talk about the clients that are showing up in court needing child care i think we have to go back to the fundament of understanding public health and prevention when you're safe when your child is safe when you care about the safety of your child the village is going to transform that means violence is going to reduce That all these kind of things we are worried about, it starts from your child. When you want your child to succeed, you're going to make sure that that neighborhood is safe. But we always think that the parents in these neighborhoods don't care. They've told us what they need. I need to make sure I leave my child in a safe place. So when they walk to get the school bus, it's a safe neighborhood we got to go back to the fundamentals of humanity and what makes us whole as human beings. So when you ask the question, are you ready to scale? If the city invests in this project, that's our job. We do the work. (laughs) Allow us to do the work and multiply and meet the needs of the families best on the needs. And remember, we are talking about equity. Your needs, her needs, my needs are all going to be different. We have to be intentional as we open up all these centers and do all this work. Are we listening to the needs of the community? Is the North side saying, no, I don't want a center. I want home best. I want the mothers in this community to be the ones watching the community and taking care of my babies. That's implementation. So the answer is we are ready, but allowing us to listen to what the community needs and what these families need, because it might look different it might not be a center it might be a home it might be something so i think the intentionality and and allowing us who do the work with the families to figure out what that is so we are ready investing this project and we are ready to move
15: thank you for that i have a question now <clears throat> excuse me in reference to pay equity what is the average salary for a teacher right now and where do you all feel they should be starting, starting salary? Can anybody if, even if it's just in, in general? Um, I'll send you a
7: publication with the exact numbers. Uh, there's a very good recent study by uh, Steve Barnett. He's uh, head of the National Institute for Early Education Research at Rutgers, and I'll forward it to, uh, I, I, I'll forward it to someone hopefully we we'll get it to you or you. Can get your email. Um, Here's a statistic from Michigan. This is specific from Michigan. The average pre K teacher in the GSRP program, the state funded preschool program, who's in a public school makes $20,000 a year less than the average K 3 teacher. The average GSRP teacher in a private preschool makes $30,000 a year less than the average K-3 teacher. That's the differential. And that's what drives the fact that if someone is interested in early education, say, as a career, why on earth would they stick around preschool if they can somehow get a certification to teach kindergarten or first grade Uh, Well, some people do but for various reasons, but you look at that and it's just a huge disparity and a huge barrier to uh, recruiting and retaining quality teachers. It's also something, you know, you constantly have to invest a lot more in retraining teachers all the time. Plus, we know from research, I mean, maybe parents know this too, ideally you would never have your child taught by a first-year teacher, with all due respect. I mean, obviously they have to teach someone. But there's a huge learning curve in, among in education. We know this: that that uh, the s- second-year teachers, on average, are much more effective than first-year teachers. Third year, then at some point it maxes out. But certainly the first year, you're not as good as the second year. It makes no sense to have these huge turnover rates because people are still figuring out how to do their job the first year. I mean, so it's a tremendous problem. And Michigan is one of the highest gaps. We are not uh, the worst state in the country on these gaps. But we're, we're, we're close to the bottom on these gaps. Uh, and that's mainly because we just simply do not fund pre-K adequately. I mean, uh, you know, it's currently being funded the same level as K-12 per student, which you know, might make sense to someone. You know, intuitively say, well, that's fair. Well, no, it's not fair, because the class size ratios in pre-K is eight to one, you know, eight students for one teacher. That's not the class size ratio in fourth grade. I mean, you know. So, so it inherently costs more per kid if you're going to pay the teachers anything close to what K-3 teachers pay. And we just have to accept that, that, that education funding needs to be based on what you need at that age level to pay people enough to deliver quality services.
12: The only thing I would add to that, too, is that the numbers that Tim gave you are for the GSRP publicly funded programs, right? Whether they're in a private program or in a school. And the programs that are privately owned, um, they're making even vastly less than that, right? So there's even a larger disparity.
14: So I wanted to um, speak on that because we, we run a lot of our preschools that are not a part of GSRP and Head Start. And so those teachers are making $12 an hour. Okay. They need to be up and get up where we try to start at with the Edison up to the $15 and $17. But they, they, in order to, for us to move up in those type of programs, it affects the family. Because if I, if I paid my teachers $15, $17, $21, I've got to put that back on my family in order to make sure that my teachers. And so the turnover in a lot of the, the private, a lot of those preschools is really um, crazy. That's the best way to say it. Because if I'm gonna make $12, I can go over here to McDonald's, I can go over here some other place, and I can make $17. I can flip some burgers, I'm go- and I can go home. I have nobody throwing up on me. I have no parents hollering at me it makes life a lot simpler whereas we do have some who want to and they love the babies and they're great teachers and they take the 12 15 dollars an hour but we really need to even work them up because they are a lot of them have the credentials they work hard and they need to be up to the 17 21 hour. you know maybe they're not going to be up to a gsrp and head start teacher but we need to help them too they are They're working just as hard with our babies in a tuition-based program.
11: I'll add one thing, Stephanie. Uh, The YWCA is committed to eliminating racism and empowering women. There is no question. The majority of the people in this industry are going to be women, and they're going to be individuals of color. That means they're making the lowest payment, and that means the economic impact on their families. The board of the YWCA made a commitment probably two years ago, three years ago, even before the COVID came to really elevate the early childhood profession. We've seen in this country how the medical field has elevated nurses, which was mainly a women's job and how it has transformed or secretaries. So there's been a commitment knowing that we have to pay them well, but provide 100 percent health benefits, provide flexible time. When your child needs to go to the hospital, you can still do those kinds of things. There is still a lot of work that needs to be done, but it's going to take initiatives like this. Again, it's about intentionality around gender equity and racial equity in this work. Because the majority of people who are doing this work are people of color. And you see the majority is going to be women who are in in the, the front line. And we saw it through COVID. That means the economic impact it has on their families.
12: I guess lastly to answer your question of what should they be paid, um, I think we need to first ask ourselves the question, how are we going to attract people into the field? Uh, Because we're not going to have a teacher pipeline until we do have fair and equitable and wages that are above poverty level and benefit full benefits. So I guess the answer would be what's going to be enough to attract the next generation of teachers?
1: Commissioner Hess.
0: Thank you for that. I, like Vice Mayor Cooney, I am humbled by the work you do in this community. It's necessary work, and it should be everyone's work. Um, A few things. In this community, I agree with Vice Mayor Cooney, again, that we can be innovative. We have been, and we have been the, the the, the early adopter for so many things, and we can be we can be a model, um, especially given the promise, given Foundation for Excellence information that we have here. We can be this innovative community um, and working together on that. Tim, uh, having talked to you, I, there are, you talked about national model, being a national model. Um, that said, there are a few other communities, right, that, that do this. And uh, how would our, how would this program compare with those cities and um, could we improve on anything that they're doing?
7: Well, I think there, there are good models of pre-K that are universal and that have received favorable evaluations, um, which requires they have some history because they're more recent things. New Mexico is moving ahead with some major things in pre-K using various oil and gas money uh, for example, Philadelphia recently uh, taxed on soft drinks to pay for uh, uh, some pre-K, u- more universal pre-K. But I think of Tulsa and Oklahoma, which I've been involved in studies of, Boston pre-K, and then Washington, D.C. Those are all universal. They're at age four for Boston and Tulsa. Uh, D.C. is at ages three and four. Uh New York City is also a model. I, I do think that the thing to think about, Tulsa and Boston have both shown good evidence of long-term success. That is, in that case, we know that the kids who went to pre-K compared to very similar kids who did not in those systems are much more likely to graduate from high school and attend college. So we know it has these long-term effects. The has been around long enough We know that, that's why I think they're good models. Now, I think what we could add here, and what is needed, is I do think you need to involve not just public school pre-K, but also involve private pre-K programs. It was talked about that different parents might have different, and that's very true in pre-K. When it gets to three and four-year-olds, parents want choice, they want a diversity of things. I mean, it's a different issue with K-12. I think it's a totally different issue from some of these issues that come up in the K-12 sector. And I think we need to give them options. Part of what you need to do that is you need to make realize that pre-K and childcare are linked systems. If private pre-K was totally eliminated from funding, if we decide to just run pre-K at ages three and four through the public schools, one of the consequences would be that many combination childcare and preschool centers that uh, relied on the overall budget from that to to be able to deliver childcare from birth to age three, they relied on the preschool part of that to help support the overall cost of the system, would close down. And in fact, uh, New York City, there's some evidence that happened, that in certain neighborhoods where New York moved to universal preschool, some childcare centers closed down. And so child care actually in those neighborhoods became somewhat less available. So I think it's crucial to include private preschools. With the right regulations, you want to make sure they're quality. You want to make sure they're, they're working with the public schools in terms of kindergarten readiness, what's expected. But I do think one thing we can, we can vary is we can have a more diverse system. And I think people generally are coming to that. Even in Tulsa, I mean, they, although the public schools control the funding, they frequently contract out with private <coughs> schools, So they do try to include the private sector in it. So I think we need to have a more, a more um, diverse set of providers than, than and, you know, in Grace you mentioned, you know, some parents may want, maybe you know, maybe you can include some family preschool providers because some people <coughs> want that really ultra-small setting, and that may be a preference for certain communities, and we need to honor that.
11: There is universal pre-K nationally. There is no universal child care model. Child care model moves early from zero all the way. Universal pre-K, is out, that model is out there. It's around in the country. The model that we haven't seen is universal child care. That means how do you get children ready for K to 12? You have to start from t- zero. And that's why we are changing the names in this industry, in the practical industry, in terms of early childhood that is more broad. It's more beyond than childcare centers. They are not babysitting places. They are developmental centers that are creating dreams for these children. So what we don't have in the country, and Tim, you can correct me, there is no universal childcare model in this country. This will be the first one in the country. The pre-Ks are around. The universal pre-Ks is around. There are definitely so many murders in, in the country.
0: Thank you. We're definitely trying to reach hearts and minds here. Um, and so, uh, Tim, you did mention, um, you know, you talked about the government's commitment, the governor's commitment, and it was fun to hear the state of the state where she, she mentioned universal pre-K. Um, and the timeline for that, what, what would be a timeline? Uh, were that to come to fruition as a state policy um, do we have that yet, or no? We don't have the timeline. I've heard
7: discussions might <coughs> implement this over a three- to four-year period. I, you know, again, I think it's up in the air. I mean, right now, in fact, this is a debate that people can try to affect. Uh, if you know someone in the administration, if you know someone in the state Senate or state house, if you know you know groups with the ear of different people, uh, you can say to them that you know they can decide on a variety of things. They I mean, you know, it's easy to announce, we're going to create so many additional pre-K slots, and then not mention that you're keeping the funding per kid the same, which means it would be actually hard to even do. In other words, you couldn't find the teachers. I mean, you know, you know, if they don't increase the funding per kid, they're not going to be able to do universal pre-K at age four. It's not going to happen. It's going to kind of fall flat. And that's a point I've tried to make to different people. And I think people, the various people in the administration who appreciate that, and I think they're trying to advocate for that, but it costs money. You know, there's not, there's
11: not a free lunch here. It costs money. And even at the state level, at the state level, the governor has launched the grants for child care. Those grants are out there. Communities have started to apply to start providing child care, so they've launched small grants in some communities. Uh, around the state. They were focusing a lot on Detroit, which is most vulnerable from a state perspective. But we've been engaged at a lot of state conversations that have been happening and really pushing universal child care. We've been part of those conversations, and I know there are other partners in here that are really pushing from a policy perspective so that there is equitability in this work. Because we launch a lot of this federal staff and state, and when it's not equitable, a small population benefits. And the majority of the population that needs these services do not benefit. So we are part of that table at the governor's level. I have staff members who are part of the policy work. Those grants have started coming down from the governor.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And uh, what I really appreciate <coughs> Excuse me, you bringing this awareness to us and to the greater community. I, I really appreciate that and the work that you all do.
1: Other thoughts or questions?
2: Yeah, Mr. Pradle. Rachel, I was going to ask you, there was one uh, statistic you were sharing about um, the wait list being much longer, and you had used the statistic originally was 101 on the wait list, and then current, I think it was 292. What period was that? Was that throughout the pandemic that that differential was occurring? Yeah, so the
13: wait list in twenty. eligible um, income eligible children was 131 and then so that was in 2019 2020 and as of today uh, 292 children are on the wait list
2: it's staggering and you know it it just seems like a number but i'm speaking as that 20 30 something year old young professional myself who has a full-time job and a partner who has a full-time job about how stressful and how much grief that caused our family for a period of like having somebody tell you, yeah, we've got a a spot maybe, maybe in 10 to 12 months. And, you know, with with all the privilege in the world uh, of of being two adults in a white household and, you know, with a full-time job and, you know, all the decks supposedly stacked in your favor to have to wait 10 to 12 months and have to feel that stress and grief. You can only imagine what the single mom is experiencing with the two part-time jobs uh, and you know trying to juggle everything as it is to try to make that work. So, you know, that many number of individuals and families and households trying to figure out and navigate that's staggering. Something I was I was gonna ask is that Grace, you keep talking about just how this is just a no-brainer, right? This is a no-brainer. And the thing that, that I always think is when you can see the sides that are usually diametrically opposed to something, that both universally agree on something, I usually figure that's, we've got something here, right? <laughs> There's probably something to this. And you've got the business community that says this is what we need as a community. And you've got progressive social justice agencies and organizations saying this is what we need as a community. Why is it so hard to find the resolve to get the people who you know, can affect policy at the national and the state level to do something? I, I, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I, you know. I,
11: <laughs> I have a doctorate in public policy, so. <laughs> policies do not shift things. I always tell people, we set the policies. It's not the tables on the desk that set the policies. And a lot of times the people that are setting the policies don't even know what's happening on the ground. The reality when we talk about child care, people are thinking about the traditional nine to five. I'm sitting here and it's not nine to five and I'm a single mom and I have children and I have to still show up and I'm privileged. We have to get to a point where there is intentionality in how we design policies and implement them to meet the real human beings that are impacted by these policies. Unfortunately, policymakers have no clue what is happening, especially to the most vulnerable. That's why within the social justice movement, we are pushing equity. We are pushing equity and defining policies that are equitable. That means the most vulnerable, the people that need it most need to benefit from these policies. Then all of us are going to benefit. I think that's where the disconnect is. The disconnect is are we talking a universal language for all of us or is it your universal language in your household? It's not a universal language for somebody working at McDonald's right now, working night shift and is a single mom. How do we get to a point where that universal language, somebody working night shift says, Chris, we are speaking about the same thing. That's where the disconnect is because we are not talking about the same things. And I hope we have an opportunity in this community to just be humans and start speaking about the same things because we always individualize this because it doesn't impact my neighbor. I'm speaking about just my own experience we got to be open and say how about the people who don't show up who's going to be their voice that's the disconnect in this work because we are always speaking in our own lens and not able to open our voices for the voiceless and that's why some of us want to be vocal and shout because their people country is their voice so that's where the disconnect i hope as we are presenting these proposals and speaking we get to a point where childcare is not 9 to 5 That's the traditional history of childcare. It is not nine to five anymore. Stryker needs employees, Pfizer needs employees, COVID showed us, the hospitals. And that's why the business community is very clear on what they need. And we are disconnected in that perspective because we're not hearing. They're lacking to hire people because they don't have childcare. So I think we gotta get to that place.
2: The um, the other, I wrote this down, so you said you can't start high, you have to start from the beginning. And uh, you know, that really resonated with me as well because you know, as you mentioned, like a number of you mentioned 80 to 90% of the uh, brain growth happens by, by the time you're five. And again, it's one of those things a former elementary school teacher myself taught third grade. It is a no brainer, right, to me. But then again, here we are, right? Um, a Couple of things, Someone someone mentioned this as well about the compounding nature and I distinctly remember, like, starting off as a, you know, each new year as a third-grade teacher. You get your new crop of, of new kids coming in. And almost universally, I'd have about a third of my kids who were still reading at about a kindergarten level in third grade. And you ask yourself, like, well, why are you struggling? Where are the hardships coming from? And, and you start to look at the curriculum in third grade, and that's when all of a sudden all the, the math problems are, you know, story problems, right? Or your, your science curriculum starts to have, like, text with it, you know? And you wonder why a kid can't succeed when they have a test in front of them and are coming into the third grade at a kindergarten reading level. They might be phenomenal at math. You know, they might really find passion in science, but finding those words to find that passion that you have is compounding effect year after year that a kid goes by. And there is no doubt in my mind that starting earlier would would have prevented that compounding nature for for kids. I was also going to just share, like, you know, I've heard some people call it like uh, the, the triple mortgage, but it's a bad term to use because we should really use like housing and rent and that sort of thing. But you think about it and you talk about the 20 or 30 somethings. It doesn't matter if, if, you, if you're, if you're uh, working part time or if, if you're a full time professional with a master's degree. A lot of 20, 30 somethings really have three double whammies you've got your housing, you've got your debt, and you've got your child care. And each of them is overwhelming. And when you, when you add all three of those things together, it doesn't matter how affluent you, you think you are, it, it, you're, you're not that well off when it's all said and done. And uh, you know, if you look at the demographics of our community, we are predominantly a community of 18 to 30 year olds. And if, if we want to thrive as a community, you mentioned serving those people where they are. And you know, that's, it's, it's causing a lot of hardship for a lot of people. Uh, in our community, especially a community with three higher ed institutions. You know, there's a lot of people who have all three of those things that are compounding them. So, thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Priddle. Other questions or thoughts from the commission? I just had a couple quick things here. First, just uh, Tim, uh, I know when you ran the numbers here, you're talking city only, so that's not a promise-wide calculation. But certainly, the issue is promise-wide right, not just the city size. I don't know if you've, because we're, you know, we're talking a broader community. I'm not sure if you're, you, you, you ran those numbers just for us, but you have also done a broader evaluation.
7: Well, for some reason that might occur to you, we did run the numbers for KPS as a whole. Uh, and, you know, roughly speaking, it, 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 it adds 50% to the cost and 50% to the benefits. So, uh, you know, because as you know, the Kalamazoo School District, I think the overall population is like 110,000. Uh, so, you know, roughly, you know, it, it doesn't end up exactly like that because of different number of kids, different income levels, whatever, but essentially it's 50% more.
1: All right. That's helpful. And then just one other thing, just in general here, since we're, you know, we're, we have focused to some extent, at least on the numbers here, you know, on, on some different categories of this broader concern, which, you know, we're talking about universal child care starting, in essence, uh, when a child is in utero, and then we're talking specifically about some numbers related to pre-K, which is, you know, a subset of that youth population, obviously. So, I'm, I'm just, run, you know, obviously, this is not something we're going to Figure out here, but I'm assuming then you, you're going to be taking that 10 million, and as you spread those benefits across a larger group, you're talking about 20 or 30 or 40 million. Maybe uh, does that does that make sense to think about it that way?
7: Well, yes. Basically, I I haven't done the numbers. You, we, it would be readily possible if people were interested to cost out what would it take. To do universal childcare at, say, the SBK neighborhoods or whatever, or everyone below whatever income level you set for the city. That could be costed out. The reality is, if you think about it a little bit, it probably would cost more than this proposal, is my guess. But I'd have to run the numbers. The reason I say that is. you know, five years of full-year care, right? And then at ages zero and one, the ratios, you need even more adults per kid. Uh, And, you know, from previously having run this stuff, I I had a proposal for a national program, I think it was 30 billion for universal pre-K at age four, and it was about 80 or 90 billion for targeted child care birth to age 5 for everyone under the poverty line. So it was like two. the universal program at age 4 was like about a third of the cost of the targeted program ages 0 to 5. I do think one of the barriers to this is, frankly, this stuff costs money. And uh, it takes time to persuade people the investment is at uh, this scale is worthwhile. I mean, it took many years to create the public school system and have common schools from grade 1 to 8. Then it took years to have the high school movement to decide, well, yeah, everyone needs to go to high school. Then it took some years to have the kindergarten movement. You know, so so I think this is a, we need to be working on this. It does take time to persuade people that these investments will pay off. I think eventually our society will. I mean, other societies do. I mean, uh, in Norway, uh, you know, starting at age one, you put your kid in a Barneshagen and, uh, it's subsidized everyone pays something but it's subsidized more heavily if you're low income and uh the americans go over there and ask which is the good barnes hog and the norwegians just look at them and say whatever one is close to your work or home is fine just don't worry about it your care will be okay
1: i appreciate that uh so like everyone else up here, I just want to say thank you very much, all of you, for the work you're doing every day and for coming here and sharing that with us. And uh, a couple things do immediately come to mind for me here. As everyone's probably aware, uh, we just recently passed our budget for 2023 here for the city of Kalamazoo. And obviously that is largely focused on the things that we do, water and sewer and public safety and public services and running elections and all that sort of thing. So that, that is that's preponderance, the vast majority of our work here. And so when we look at numbers, a couple of things are immediately evident uh, to me in this place, is that the, the city will be a partner in this effort, uh, not the only, I mean, outside of the work you're doing, you know, not not the only entity that that funds and drives this. So I think it's really important for us to think about how to be the most effective partner. And one of the things the city can do is uh, other than, you know, contemplate, you know, funding and resources is advocacy. So I I just want to give a very brief uh, example of that and how powerful it can be. So we are part of something here at the city called the Michigan Municipal League, and there is a smaller group of people who represent uh, what's called urban core mayors. So that is a group of, uh, what, 15 to 20 mayors here, which we participate in. Obviously, it includes, you can imagine, the, the urban core cities that are represented by that group. and The big dog in that group is Detroit, obviously. and. Uh, Sometimes Detroit is goes its own way, and uh, doesn't particularly care about whether you know Kalamazoo follows along. Uh, but sometimes we do land on the same page, and really, uh, almost as recently as I would say a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Urban Core mayors uh, had a meeting that was a culmination of several meetings that was pushed much by uh, Mayor Duggan and. Dugan in Detroit and that was related to this idea of affordable housing and our great need in our communities for that and that uh, within a matter of days literally I would say actually a day or hours between the advocacy there in that group what you saw happen was a 1.1 billion dollar appropriation which I'm sure you followed which just got passed here within the last week which included $150 million for uh, affordable housing, in addition uh, to tax credits and other resources that come out and $50 million in there for a kind of a missing middle kind of incentive for housing. So, but primarily that happened, I would say, by that, that group pulling together, having a very clear, simple proposal that was not theoretical it was very specific on numbers and timing was right to jump in and look at this as appropriating really last year's money was was what happened that 1.1 billion but suddenly it's there even though it's something that's been being talked about a long time so I would say that groups like cities can be effective advocates in this arena as well and to do that, we're gonna not, we, we can't just go that alone on the advocacy side. So we're gonna need folks, and I assume that you are aware of your partners around the state, but we're gonna need folks in Detroit and in Grand Rapids and in those areas that do help carry that advocacy weight in order to bring that important message when we're talking about our state legislature and the actions that are gonna happen there and uh, having a specific plan and tying some numbers to it so it makes it convenient. You know, to pick that up without a lot of conversation and drop it into uh, a a plan is what makes that work. So just a story about other ways that a city with concerted effort of a statewide consortium can be Helpful on the advocacy side as well. Thank you once again. I really appreciate it. I want to make sure everyone's got a few minute break here before we start our seven o'clock meeting, uh, but we're looking forward to further conversations. So take care. Appreciate your efforts. And we will be adjourning and just reminding everybody our business meeting starts at seven o'clock right here in these chambers. We are adjourned.